Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Bay Area has official histories, stories that shape how we see the development of our area and suggest where things might be headed. But what gets left out of those urban narratives? Today's guests, Rick and Megan Prelinger, have done the world an unalloyed solid. They've gathered up films of all types, home movies, industrial films, outtakes, digitized them and made them available free to everyone so everyone can see our collective past. And every once in a while, they collect a bunch of clips under the banner of their Lost Landscape series. They've got another one coming up. We're gonna talk with them about Bay Area history and hear about the secrets you find hidden in 8mm home movies. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's easy to compress history the further away you get from it. The real and actual three-dimensional humans can become statistics or icons or left out entirely of theories of structure or ideology. So when I sat down in the Prelinger Archive space in Richmond watching films made 70 years ago, I was not taken by the obvious dimensions of the past, the old technologies, racial homogeneity, gender strictures. What really caught me by surprise was a green like an actual color, a rich Kelly green that featured heavily in the women's clothing of a few different films. I mean, not only is that color fairly rare now in American clothing, but it's also strikingly beautiful. And I'd never even imagined that some of the people I saw swishing around the black and white photographs from that era were wearing a green like that. And if I could not know that, what else is missing from my imaginings of those past eras? It's the stuff of everyday life. It's texture that Rick and Megan Prelinger have dedicated themselves to. They've amassed an astonishing collection of films from the 20th century and are now embarking on perhaps their most ambitious mission to digitize a vast array of American home movies. But we'll get to all that. First, let's welcome Rick Prelinger, founder of the Prelinger Archives, whose moving image holdings may be found online at archive.org, co-founder of the Prelinger Library, publicly available collection of historical periodicals, books, print ephemera, maps, government documents, and 
so much more. Welcome, Rick. Good morning. And Megan Prelinger, co-founder of the Prelinger Archive and co-director of the Prelinger Archives Film Digitization Project, also author of a great book, Another Science Fiction, Advertising the Space Race 1957 to 1962, as well as Inside the Machine, Art and Invention in the Electronic Age. Welcome, Megan. (laughs) Thank you, Alexis. Great to be here. So, Rick, let's start with you. Let's talk about where you find your films. Like, are you dumpster diving, eBay purchases? Do people send them to you? I started collecting in the 80s, and this was a moment of media transition when we were moving to film to videotape, and those are the moments when things get dumped. And so there was great opportunity for a youngster with no money and uh, no place to put it (laughs) to acquire a lot of material, and I ended up with 13 storage vaults of material that became the Prelinger Archives, which grew and grew and grew in New York, went to the Library of Congress. Moved out here um, in those days. And couldn't help yourself. Just kept going. (laughs) Well, I I realized that there was a reason that this needed to be done. And people gave me material. I then, when when we got interested in home movies, I did a lot of eBay. But that's a bad thing, you know. History gets fragmented on eBay. The awful story of a man taking a movie of Dr. King and cutting it up into three movies so they could get three sales. Uh. Um, Now people come to us because they know what we're doing and we're um, happily overwhelmed with film. Yeah. Megan, you also curate printed ephemera at the Prelinger Library. I mean, why do you think it's important to collect those little pamphlets and booklets and all the other things that that are there that might not be in a library? Uh, well, the history that's not yet been written is all in the ephemeral materials. Mm-hmm. Um, the books that are out represent all the research that's been done and for the future. For all future research, it's all the stories that are still hidden and undisclosed mm-hmm. in ephemeral printed literature, zines, magazines, yeah. pamphlets, documents. Well, it almost seems like the things that we think we know best, like, say, works project you know, progress administration. Um, these things have been subject of, you know, grand historical narratives, and yet you can still find new things in your archives sometimes, right? There are still uh, elements that any historian may have overlooked in the past, and you just never know whether those are going to turn up. And the less commonly accessed uh, and visible and accessible documents have the most interesting um, and grandest potential for undisclosed histories. Yeah. Rick, what do you think is in some of these? I'm just going to group them as sort of weird films, but in a positive way. <laughs> these films that are outside the canon of how we normally think about films. What do you think's in them that isn't in you know, a documentary from the time or just basic news footage or something? Yeah, I think, you know, um, there's footage that's been kind of canonized because it's official or it might even be in a featured film, but films that are made by ordinary people to picture everyday life, such as home movies, or films that are made about ordinary people, like, uh, I don't know, Salvation Army making a film about so-called Skid Row and Mm. Third and Howard. There's room to, um, we can project ourselves onto those films, and these films affect us in a very different way. They're made by real people. Mm. Uh, You know, it's not an abstract idea. Well, and like, what do you think is different about watching real people, though, right? Is it just that there's 
more, almost more information <laughs> encoded there? So there's a great question. There's a lot of incredible information. Like you talked about the green. That's a discovery that you've made, you know, the new color for 25. <laughs> but um, I think uh, conventional movies try a lot of tricks to get you to empathize with characters. But with home movies especially, the empathy is already there. They, you don't have to create a narrative. You don't have to turn on the music. We have an understanding of who these people are. Megan, um, when you look at home movies, do you see, you know, in your books, you've you use a lot of these old advertisements, not just for the information that's in them, but also like the aesthetic, the the art of them. How would you describe for people you know, who can't see these home movies? Um, how would you describe kind of the art or the aesthetic of, you know, a, a 1950s Kodachrome home movie? Uh, well, it's fascinating to watch the virtues of the color arrays change over time as different film stocks emerged. Um, but I want to throw in that people can look at all the movies. They're, we're scanning them and putting yes, them online. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about that. And uh, just the, the back to your question, the visual vernacular of ordinary life ha- is such a rich template. Um, in a fiction film, that template's been manufactured but in a home movie, um, it's just natural. It's organic, and uh, and it changes across the decades. It changes with the texture and the colors chosen for vehicles, clothing, mm-hmm. um, paint colors on homes, um, textures of uh, things we've never seen as new before, but we see them looking new in home movies, and, oh, that's what... Um, that original toy looked like that in my life I've only seen as an ancient object. <laughs> right, right. Um, but here it is when it was shiny and including, um, you know, people and their their homes and their yeah. clothes, just everything, every aspect of the texture of everyday life. Mm. You know, now we're so used to having cameras pointed at us, right? I mean, this is just a, an everyday part from the minute a child is zero minutes old, you know, until to present, you know, whatever that present is. Um, people in the old home movie seem to act a little bit differently, though, too, right? I mean, there's still the newness of a lot of film in a lot of cases, right? Sometimes they're vamping, sometimes they're not, sometimes they don't know what to do. Um, how do you think it will be different for future archivists looking back at this period, trying to think about how they what was authentic i'm kind of air quoting here which listeners can't see authentic footage what was like how how are you how do you think they might see our you know iphone videos now i think abundance is going to be a big issue you know infinity we're getting like the borges map you know the <laughs> one to one we have almost a one to one correspondence between video and real life so um we're going to lose a lot but i think people will pick out videos that mean something mm-hmm. uh uh but you know um the 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 kind of a thrift with home movies because it was expensive most families were kind of thrifty they would shoot a few seconds and when you find especially like a working class family with an hour-long movie that's really unusual and special mm-hmm. but you realize that there was some deep interest in portraying and preserving the contours of daily life and family mm-hmm. relationships we're talking with Bay Area rogue archivists, Rick and Megan Prelinger, founders of the Prelinger uh, Library and Archive. 
they've got a screening of Lost Landscapes. It's going. There's going to be two, Monday, uh, December 4th, and Tuesday, December 5th at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. And you can get tickets at cityboxoffice.com. Uh, Rick, for people who've never been to a Lost Landscapes, like what is the sort of concept of this sort of filmic event? Lost Landscapes kind of feels like a movie, but it's anything but. It's a feature-length film that's made out of footage that you will not have seen before, for the most part. And it's about um, the life, culture, industry, buildings, places of San Francisco and California. And unlike most movies, um, the audience makes the soundtrack. (laughs) The audience is... I invite the audience to identify people, places, and... Uh, events to shout out identifications to disagree with their neighbors. So it's a, it's a, it's the way that movies used to be before they kind of got, you know, wow. all fixed. Um, and uh, yeah, the idea is also that um, we. Everybody um, makes their own narrative that history is something that belongs to the audience. It isn't an institutional thing. These are presented for you to kind of make your own. Make yeah. your own experience. Um, can you talk about the theme? Because this is, I guess, the 18th year, at least 18th presentation of, of Lost Landscapes. Um, city and Bay in Motion, Transportation and Communication. Like, what was the, what's the idea behind that theme? <laughs> oh, well, there's just so much material. It's a, it's a fun framing element when we're in a time in our lives together here in the Bay Area of uh, bringing our transit systems back. Mm -hmm. So that's been on our minds, um, the life stories of of transit and transportation, Um, since there's just so much flux and it's to such an extent on people's minds. Um, But it's really kind of a fun frame because every edition of Lost Landscapes is going to have a bouquet of everything of everyday life. (laughs) You want to add to that? Well, um, you know, uh, who knows that the first San Francisco Bay Bridge was in 1930, the Dumbarton Bridge. It said San Francisco Bay Bridge. Who knows that they used to contemplate hydrofoil service on Lake Merritt, you know, within (laughs) the city of Oakland. uh, And helicopters were ubiquitous, airport to airport. You know, these are all, there's a lot of footage of that kind of thing. And it's... um, it's a nice umbrella. Also, communication. Yeah. You know, we'll have the young hackers in El Cerrito who built their own phone system out of surplus uh, uh, phone equipment. Uh, you know, we like to inject our techno-future-oriented <laughs> society with uh, uh, technological memory to yeah. kind of power that future. Oh. We're talking with Bay Area film archivist Rick and Megan Prelinger about their latest edition of the Lost Landscape series. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Rick and Megan Prelinger. You probably know them from the Prelinger Archives, which you can find at archive.org. It's an incredible collection of films and documents that they have put together over the years. They, about once a year, put on a big show called Lost Landscapes. That's going to be on December 4th and 5th in the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. And you can get your tickets at cityboxoffice.com. After that, after the show's over, you can go to lostlandscapes.org and see uh, a simulcast, right? That's what you're what, – what is that? It's actually going to be on the 11th. The we'll 11th. do a, a webcast where you can chat. You can interact. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, we'd also love to hear from you. I mean, have you been to Lost Landscapes? What was your experience there? Did you learn something new from those films? Or maybe you've done some of your own film scavenging or finding. Have you ever uncovered old home movies or other interesting footage, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find our digital community on Discord. You can go to kqed.org slash forum to sign up there. Um, so what are the recent finds for this edition of Lost Landscapes that you're kind of most excited about people seeing? Um, some things that knocked my socks off were um, a huge army encampment in Golden Gate Park in the polo field in 1944. Golden Gate Park was militarized. I think thousands of of, of men camped there. Um, uh, the Portal of Gardens, the greenhouses in the Portal of District, where there was recently a, uh, you know, this was a huge area to grow uh, vegetables and flowers, um, a big uh, controversy over saving the last ones. We have footage of them flourishing and footage of them being demolished in the 70s. Um, astonishing footage of the Gay Freedom Parade in 78, uh, ju- uh, you know, jubilant uh, Harvey Milk and uh, and gay Native Americans and uh, deaf gay people, just a kind of no corporate sponsors, you know, right, at that right. point. Very, very exuberant. Um, Bella Abzug speaking in Golden Gate Park, take back the night rallies at, uh, wow. at, uh, at, at a TV, st- at the Chronicle, you know, some wonderful wow. surprises. Wow. Megan, do you have any favorites you want to share or, or classics from the, the, the history of Lost Landscapes? Uh, well, we're looking forward to sharing footage of uh, Paul Robeson, of, uh, um, you know, people riding BART when it was new, uh, things like that. Uh, and directing, you know, BART when it was new, so fascinating because, I, you know, there's a, in San Francisco Public Library, they have uh, a lot of different collections. There was actually a, a real estate guy who had gone, you know, helping like they, like a property purchaser. And he, you know, parked his collection there. And so there's a lot of the promotional materials from like the opening of BART. And it's presented as this like futuristic, ele- you know, electronic age computerized marvel, right? And, you know, 
I'm not sure many people think of Bart like that anymore. Oh, it was. Oh. I, yeah. I rode on day one, and it was. And I stood behind the train operator and dressed in a almost like a Star Trek outfit. And the train operator, the train was going 81 miles an hour. And we have home movies showing a woman operating a train wow. very early on. And it expresses this sort of public excitement. It was very special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think maybe part of it is right. People probably know this at this point, but it was the first new public transit system that had been put in, in in many, many years in the United States. And so it was kind of a chance to, to do it differently from the old New York subway. Um, what, uh, on Lost Landscapes, Megan, you know, it's this kind of interactive performance. Were you surprised that the audience actually interacted for real? <laughs> Were you, was that a... Uh, well, the experience of pr- promoting and putting on a live... Uh, like a theatrical event was new for everyone involved. Um, I mean, really for Rick, but uh, we we were both taken um, just wonderfully by surprise and delight with mm-hmm. the degree of community involvement. And uh, I'm always surprised at the modes of engagement. One person said, well, we heard we were supposed to make our own soundtrack, so I brought my guitar, and I'm going to play along <laughs> one year. Um, uh, we, and it's uh, like all the delight of uh, bringing together all these uh, people around a common interest and inviting yeah. people to respond. That, yeah. The first uh, ever show in 06, Megan actually put together a score of recorded music so that the footage wouldn't be just kind of echoing in the in the silence right. and the audience drowned it out. Only <laughs> in year comedy. one was yeah. the concerned that the quiet would be too big of a presence. And then uh, immediately that concern fell away oh. as people just showed up and got involved. Do you all capture the identifications that are made at Lost Landscapes? Is there a way? Because I can imagine that there's actually there's a lot of really useful things that are probably said during that time. There sure. is. We, we try to save them. It's mm-hmm. impossible to record because you would need hundreds of mics, you know, yeah, in right, the audience. Right, right. But but yeah, no, we learn an incredible amount. Wow. Um, let's bring in Liz, uh, actually calling in from uh, Washington, D.C. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Tell us your story. Um, I... Um, uh, I am very interested, though I think Rick Pralinger just answered my question. Um, I was saying that I have attended a couple of these um, Lost Landscapes performances because they're tremendously performative um, events. And I was thinking that uh, one learned so much from these, uh, from the audience participation, that I was wondering if, in fact, Rick and Megan Prelinger um, recorded these events for uh, posterity. But I think I may have just heard that. <laughs> Sorry, we stepped on your line, Liz. Uh, my my apologies. There would, be, there would be too many mics necessary. <laughs> That's Did I hear correctly? Yes, correctly, correct, correct. But I guess, you know, at the same time, thank you so much for uh, that, Liz. I, I think there's a, a way in which a major identification, you you both know so much about the Bay Area that if somebody were to say, that's so-and-so, I imagine that kind of sticks with you and you can you can capture it. 
Yeah. Yes. And we've made mistakes. I mean, I did this in Detroit for a number of years, and I did some howlers, uh, and they corrected me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's live and learn all the way along. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, One other, this is a a fun, uh, Arlene in Berkeley, welcome. Hi. Hello, hello. Thank you. Hello. Do you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Cool. Yeah, Arlene Edwards, I wanted to talk about Paul Robinson. Um, because my, when I heard that name, it just clicked when I was like, I, I don't know if I was actually a young child or born yet. Maybe I just knew the stories. But Paul Robinson, you know, they took his passport away and my family threw a benefit for him. My grandmother, who used to loan money to people in the 40s and 30s to buy a color to buy property, uh, Roxana Edwards, and she owned the California Supper Club where Paul Robinson and Bob Hope and, and, uh, Billy Holiday and all kinds of people performed in the Fillmore. Wow. And and then we lived on Ninth and Noriega in San Francisco. My father, who was the first, uh, uh, Hezekiah Edwards, who was the first African-American chef in the Chef's Union in San Francisco. Huh. And because of my grandmother and them and my mother and all, they bought a property in the, in the 40s on in uh, Golden Gate Heights, Forest Hills. And the next... Uh, family of color who moved in was Willie Mays and his family. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know what I love about that, Arlene? I feel like that Willie Mays story, it's like the one that gets entered into the history books, right? There was, it causes all this hullabaloo with the mayor and there's all the the news. Yeah. (laughs) I remember them standing up there, the whole family and, and, um, and Ethley Bailey and, and, uh, the head of the the owner of the Giants and the mayor of San Francisco. And there was one other person I can't remember. Yeah. Well, and I love, um, Arlene, thank you so much for sharing those uh, memories with us. Um, Rick, I was going to say, you know, what what I find amazing about that story, right, is people may know about Willie Mays, but they wouldn't know about Arlene's family, right? The family that had to fight their way into that neighborhood without being the famous person, without necessarily making it into the newspapers. But there's like another family facing those same challenges that, you know, might have, you might encounter their home movie and be like, oh, yeah. And and, and we try very hard to find that. You know, we found uh, when the sunset was completely segregated, we found families who had black friends who they invited over. uh, And, you know, you see black faces in the sunset, very, very uh, important like that. And and families in the Mission and the Portola District who are Mexican and Irish together. And people tend to stereotype these histories. And when you find footage that shows that, Reality is so much more complicated and mm-hmm. intersectional. That's a, a great yeah. thing. Yeah. I know now I'm also want to, I want to know more about the California Supper Club, you know? <laughs> right. The Fillmore. There's probably, I, I imagine you all have a decent amount of Fillmore footage or is it more difficult to find than I think? Not enough. Uh, it's going to take, uh, I think, a long time of reaching out to people both here and in the black diaspora who left San Francisco, mm-hmm. often under duress. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who had union jobs, you know, could afford mm-hmm. making home movies. So there's footage there. And over time, we find more and more of it. So we've talked about the show uh, being silent, but of course, not everything in the uh, Prelinger uh, film archives is is silent. And we wanted to give some folks a sense of the other kinds of films that are that are in the collection. So here is a is a clip um, of a film I think called Golden Horizon. 
Today, the California story of growth is one of the exciting chapters in the history of human progress because it is primarily a story of people, men, women, children, following a natural urge to live in, to work in, to play in this golden land, a land where they can play all year round, for climate here is as close to perfect as it can be anywhere on Earth. And once here, the newcomer would rather be here than anywhere else. A land of elbow room, where a man isn't crowded if it's his destiny to develop a new industry, small or large, on land that he can afford to buy. That's a clip from uh, Golden Horizon, one of the, this I guess would be classed as an industrial film, or what'd you say, promotional film? Yeah, made by, I think, PG&E to bring business here. But, you know, it hits all the buttons. It's capital describing itself as people and climate. (laughs) And then when I heard that word destiny, you know, an elbow room manifest destiny, really colonization and settlement. This is just a very nice way of saying we're going to grow and uh, push out whoever's already here. In the genre of sponsored films. Yeah. 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 And, you know, of course, other people may recognize other things. There's those particular string sections playing that, you know, music from that time, as well as the sort of, what do they call that? The mid Atlantic accent, you know? <laughs> A land of plenty here in California, you know, that, that side of things. And also, it's interesting, too, how words that might then have not had the same connotation they do now, now ring out to us. So you hear climate, and of course everyone mm-hmm. now thinks climate change would not have been on the minds of the people who, who made that film. Or just wait. Yeah. Just wait, yes. We're going to have a climate change surprise this year. Oh, wow. But oh. yeah, sponsored films um, you know, share a lot of features and characteristics with narrative films, and that's one thing that makes them interesting because they're narrative and non-narrative at the same time. Yeah, Somebody spent money to promote an idea or to get us to think or behave or to buy in a certain way. And so they're incredibly revealing this, you know, galaxy of persuasions coming down. And like, where would that have been shown? Like, how would somebody have seen that in its original context? I think uh, either somebody comes here to look at uh, possible industrial sites or PG&E sends a representative out to a corporation that's thinking of relocating and says, let's first watch a movie. <laughs> and so like it, sets up a little projector, hits go, and totally, yeah. you know, it's well, kind of an induction process. And you know, we go through the reverse of that ritual now when we scan. You know, so we have uh, this amazing staff of aid, and we scan, and they watch this material all day, and are in a lot of ways obliged to uh, witness all of this ideology. Wow. But like, uh, just like industrial advertisements, uh, sponsored films inform and recruit and train people how to think about new worlds of capital and commerce and right. uh, that are being invented. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Yeah, that's SponCon, as you might call it now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we are in a, in a time you know, post-pandemic here in the city where, you know, people talk about the doom loop and talk about how the city's ruined. But given how much time you've spent watching films, I mean, not just in historical San Francisco, but Oakland and all around, you know, the Bay Area. I mean, how how does that inform the way that you see where we are in our urban history? You know, it it helps soften um, our uh, what would otherwise be, you know, 
tough feelings about some things that are happening today um, because we see that history is nothing but change and Mm -hmm. that change is, you know, has a forward movement more Mm -hmm. often than not, we hope, Um, and that uh, tough times have come and gone before in the past, and we can see the record of those transitions in the in documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, all the documentation also reveals historical antecedents that are so often obscured today um, and kind of assists with a very long view of history. Mm-hmm. It doesn't uh, temper our activism in everyday life to make change today for tomorrow. Um, I, but I'd say it energizes mm-hmm. those efforts. Yeah. And also, the even in the films, you can see there's a long history of struggle and resistance in the Bay Area. And this is a place where a lot of people are mm-hmm. visualizing and acting for a better world. And it's in every sphere, you know. I mean, uh, you mentioned our films are at archive.org. That's an effort to share information. And Internet make, archive yeah, make is history, archive.org. Yeah, make history available. And so we're, I think we're privileged to live in an environment like that. Let's hear a, a clip from the collection that really gets into a lot of this complexity on the kind of changing face of cities. San Francisco, a city so beautiful her worshippers hoped she would never change, faces a drastic facelifting. For even the guardian of the Golden Gate has been rocked by America's population explosion. Some traditions, like the beloved old cable cars, are jealously preserved, even though mass transportation is desperately needed. Chinatown, too, the largest Chinese settlement outside the Orient, refuses to lose its exotic, though neighborly, character. Gourmets will fight for Fisherman's Wharf to the last drop of lobster sauce. Yet, the brutal fact is that the lovely old city is bursting at the seams. The old must give way to the new. San Franciscans hope that it is the worst of the old that goes, and that the new is worthy of the tradition it inherits. To that end, a daring master plan has been inaugurated, which includes replacing the wholesale produce market area with a modern complex of apartment houses and office buildings. The urban renewal plan under which the substandard dwellings are to be replaced by modern housing and business centers poses problems, however, beyond the multi-million dollar financing. Removal of vast numbers of people to low-income residential developments could fill up the open spaces that make the six-county Bay Area so attractive. It could strain educational, police, and municipal government facilities. But as she rose from the ashes of her great earthquake, San Francisco can rise literally in the upward thrust of soaring towers to take care of the thousands who keep coming on to live beside the Golden Gate. God, we're going to talk more about that film when we get back. But I mean, the last drop of lobster sauce, a daring master plan, removal of vast numbers of people, take care of the thousands. There's so much to talk about uh, in this film, including who who made it. I mean, it's like a miniature portrait of the 1950s attitudes, both, both good and bad. The necessity to take care of people, but also this idea that all you're going to do is just take people out of their homes and, and remove them. We're here talking with Bay Area film archivists Rick and Megan Prelinger, also playing a few clips from their archive. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. (laughs) 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Bay Area film archivists Rick and Megan Pralinger, both about their collections as well as their Lost Landscape series. It's going to be screened December 4th and 5th at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. Tickets available at cityboxoffice.com. I'm going to go on the 4th. That's what uh, I have decided. I cannot wait. Um, We'd love to hear your story as well. Have you been to Lost Landscapes? What was your experience? Did you learn something new there? Or maybe tell us about some film you found in, you know, the old garage and covered a old film that taught you something about your family or the the neighborhood. Give us a call. Number's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our digital community. It's on Discord. You can go to kqed.org slash forum to sign up. Um, Before we went to the break, we heard that incredible clip um tell us how did that clip get made like where did that come from so that was a newsreel clip um from hearst newsreel shown in theaters uh, around the country and around the world and i think it was a story that was probably pitched by the redevelopment agency mm-hmm. to kind of whitewash this project that was very controversial and talk about san francisco bursting at the seams mm-hmm. and all that poor housing uh, but then it makes this bizarre turn and it says what are we going to do with all the people that we displace <laughs> they're going to fill up the parks uh, you know in essence it's a very convoluted and almost hostile and they logic. don't uh, consider that um the towers they're building that became the golden gateway um could house um all the people who <laughs> were otherwise displaced and more if if made affordable yeah well, and Megan, you all have a bunch of ephemera in the Prelinger Library about the, the urban renewal process here in the city. We do. Well, it's got to be remembered and, uh, you know, future efforts done better, mm-hmm. done better informed by memory. Um, we have a fantastic research collection on, uh, on the history of redevelopment in the city and resistance Mm-hmm. And community response and all the ways that communities have uh, been resilient and managed to stay and continue pushing forward. Yeah. Like a lot of histories, too. And they look really good on paper. We have these beautiful brochures from the redevelopment agency oh, yeah. about your role in urban renewal. You know, we're going to find you a house. Just go here. And, of course, none of this worked out. Right, right. I mean, the the early BART documents are incredibly beautiful. The mm-hmm. new city um, you know, the early kind of like, I think that's just after the war, you mm-hmm. start to get those urban redevelopment because you get that mid-century design in all those documents. Right. Planning for BART started in the late 40s. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Um, 
We uh, have some comments to uh, want to get to. Mimi writes in to say, you know, listening to your guests, it occurs to me that their work is the visual equivalent of the Kitchen Sisters' beloved series Lost and Found Sound, equally revelatory and equally valuable. Totally agree. Uh, shout out to the Kitchen Sisters. Uh, another listener writes, as a three-year-old born in 1957 in Campbell, I was subjected to the blinding lights required by the small eight millimeter camera my dad had. <laughs> While we have some great images of kids opening presents, I lament the lack of natural outside shots. One reason is there used to be literal clouds of morning glory monarch and swallowtail butterflies. The butterflies are mostly gone from the Bay Area now. I see about three of them every year here in Sonoma County. What can be learned from the archives about the dramatic changes in our environment as we shifted from the Valley of Heart's Delight to Silicon Valley. Wow, thanks for sh- calling in uh, historical ecology. <laughs> right. That's uh, not something everyone thinks of in association with home movies, but it's a real major uh, contribution that the uh, documentation offered in home movies can offer to the future and our understanding of Bay Area ecology. Um, we've got documentation of open parklands, uh, natural wildflower blooms in places people have never seen wildflowers because now there are buildings there, um, really all over California. And um, we love to connect the collection to the um, community of ecologists and especially historical ecologists there's a lot to say there the the golden gate park we see different birds uh swimming around in stow lake all of that has changed a great deal it's so interesting well i mean it's uh, the difficulty is almost how do you do the geocoding right how do you pin down the date like let's say you know the uh-huh. the phenologists the people who study seasonal change you probably have a ton of films that sort of accidentally show bud break or flowering or the things that they use in their work, but how could you pin the date down to, like, the day? Well, typically film on film can be identified within a year, Um, and places can be verified, you know, through site work. Um, So it can be done uh, really within a year. Can't always tell the month, but sometimes you can. Sometimes people will uh, put a little piece of paper in front of the camera (laughs) to say when something was filmed or uh, make a beautiful homemade, handmade intertitle. Um, that gives a specific date. So, uh, Or it's Christmas, which yeah. I, I hear is a decent chunk of the films <laughs> too, right? Um, yeah. yeah, but you know what Megan is pointing out is that these are a base for all sorts of research, uh, research that we can't begin to imagine yeah. uh, yet. And over time, we hope that the films will function that way. Yeah. And before we go back to the phones, I do want to talk about the, the sort of the project that's going on right now, which is you got a, a pretty large grant from the Filecoin Foundation. Is that right? Filecoin Foundation for the Decentralized Web. Got it. And so that has allowed you to kind of increase the throughput and quality of the films that you're scanning, right? Absolutely. Pre-project, we were partnered with Internet Archive, and uh, we got a lot done. Um, and uh, But the foundation partnership um, has really dramatically expanded the capacity um, of film digitization, uh, metadata, film preparation. 
Yeah. Um, fantastic. Eight fantastic people. We have this stellar crew of people who have an incredible amount of experience dealing with unusual film. We have 125 different kinds of original film that we're dealing with. So almost that many different workflows. So, you know, yeah. people look at material, they log it, they look things up, they do deep Google image searches, yeah. they fix film that has problems. Um, it's, it's quite intricate artisanal work, but it's amazing. We've done... Between three and four thousand films so far, and there will be many, many more. So wow. we're and the people who are working on the project with us, alongside us, have um, you know depths of experience. You know, we have our particular experience, but everyone has a very deep, particular set yeah. of experiences, and it's really uh, become like an evolving knowledge trust. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of cracking up. When, uh, Rick and I were watching one with one of the the folks in the di- digitization lab. And um, there was a picture of a highway or, you know, film of a highway. And Rick was like, oh, well, you know, they they did the striping on the highway in this particular way. So we can probably nail it to that it was Midwestern and it was in this era. And I was like, oh, my God, you all have seen a lot of films, <laughs> a lot of films. Um, let's uh, let's bring in another caller here. Let's go to uh, John in Santa Clara. Yes, good morning. Um, well, you said you have co-movies in archive and a lot of the uh, uh, productions that you're doing. Well, my wife, Erlinda, quit San Jose State with two friends from 67 to go to San Francisco to live. She would sell Berkeley Barb's alternative newspapers and her own bead necklaces in the Haight uh, uh, and near Pier 39 in order to go to concerts at Fillmore and Winterland. Mm-hmm. Many people, she said that many people took Super 8 movies of her from tour buses. She always wondered if these people had kept those films. Mm. Is it possible that the archive might have anything like that? Or even in newsreels of the hate. Did did she do it barefoot? Uh, No, she did wear sandals. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe some of the time she might have been barefoot. But, Uh, I mean, uh, she was the person who's going to college, had a degree in mind, but found that she loved the music so much and she loved what was going on in the hate that uh, she and the two friends just had to move up there. So I imagine, Rick, you're asking if she was barefoot because you do have a film of somebody selling newspapers barefoot in the hate. At Fisherman's Wharf, uh, yeah. Selling the Berkeley Barb. We have a few uh, shots of people selling the Berkeley Barb in different contexts. So if if John and Santa Clara were to try and find this, is it searchable yet? Do you know if it's been? So if you go to Internet Archive, the past shows are up there. So you can look for Lost Landscapes and you can watch them and you can take a look at that young woman and see if it happens to be. (laughs) As are, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of home movies that have been digitized um, that uh, need (laughs) new eyeballs on them to identify these kinds of uh, events. Yeah, and people, yeah. And people. They, is there a process for sort of receiving, I mean, we, in, you know, archiving people would call it like the metadata, like who's in this and mm-hmm. what's it of. Do you all have a process for if someone IDs someone in one of your films that they can say, hey, add this to the metadata? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I'm, we've, uh, we... Our, we pride ourselves on our metadata. We spend a lot of time and resources and effort, and the descriptions are great. People yeah. can take a look. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's bring in Anne in Martinez. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. I, yeah, I'm very interested in this. This is, just sounds wonderful. I've 
crazy about this kind of stuff. I have a book that my grandmother gave me years ago uh, called The Silent Traveler in San Francisco by Chiang Lee. And I guess he had written quite a few books out of different big famous cities. And she always said that the, there was a drawing in it that was me on um, uh, one of the first times that women were allowed to stand outside on a cable car. <laughs> and I wondered if you have any information about when women could start. I, I think it was 1962 when I was on this cable car, and I remember an Asian man drawing frantically as we went by him, and I was wearing a bright red outfit, and I don't know if it's me or not, but my family always thought it was. And, and I'm I just going to say, that's got to be you. We had, that's It's too good. You've got to just, I, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice the accuracy. Um, th- thanks yeah. so much for that. <laughs> Do you, uh, any more on uh, cable car... Is it a specialty? No. Oh, oh there's, there's so, so many. I mean, we love the you know the the obscure cable cars, the Castro Street one, the Fillmore Street uh, Gravity, you know, where one car pulled the other up, all that stuff. And is, the way the perspective changes, yeah. Whether it's an eight millimeter home movie or professional stock photography, they all capture different uh, visual. Uh, affordances and uh, in the metadata, someone could search for 1962 and cable yeah. car and take a look at every occurrence. Yeah. So, Anne, you can you can do that. You can go to the Prelinger archive and search 1962 and yeah, um, and cable car. Um, this is a this is a great one. Uh, Michael writes: Do the guests have any industrial films from the Jam Handy organization? <laughs> that name has always fascinated me. I feel like you have a bunch. No. That almost sounds like a plant, but yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah. um, so, thanks, Michael. Yeah, so uh, yeah, Michael, uh, you may or may not know, but when Jam Handy was the titan of industrial film production, they made th- ten thousand films from I don't know the teens until the eighties, and I did go through their vault after they closed down, and we had over a thousand Jam Handy films, most of which are now at the Library of Congress, but you can see about four hundred of them at the Internet Archive. They're incredible, too, right? They're incredible. Well, yeah, and sponsored films. Uh, Jam Handy was one of the biggest producers of these types of films we were speaking of earlier. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the web now and you see how corporations speak to us, they learned a lot of that from Mr. Handy. (laughs) Um, Let's bring in uh, Paul in San Francisco. Welcome, Paul. Hi there. I've got some... uh old Super 8 time-lapse videos that I took in 1989. I had them digitized. Uh, I traded my projector to, to a film student. <laughs> <laughs> and you and know, Paul, uh, it's kind of grainy, but... Yeah. Love to see them. Yeah, I would have to say, you know, like for someone like Paul, they might have a, an old film. Do you accept submissions? Is that something people sure, can... Sure, uh, absolutely. Just get in touch. We'll scan uh, them for you. Info at pralingerlibrary.org is one email. Yeah. Um, and uh, we can talk about it. Paul, you have to send those. Also, you know, ccforum at kqed.org. <laughs> I want to see them too. <laughs> I'm so curious uh, about, you know, the, the hate in 1989. Um, I mean, because in part, right, you're talking about a particular period, a particular window in which these kinds mm. of films were made, right? And then you get video and VHS, which is not something you all handle in the same way, right? I wish we could. It's very, it's complicated and expensive to preserve video. Others are doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I mean, just on a 
not to be a jerk, but like on an aesthetic level, the eight millimeter has really, really held up versus if you look at a hmm. 1985 Betamax, you're like, oh, yeah, there's an image there, I guess, you know. Eight millimeter is the people's format. You know, it was introduced in the 30s. It was cheaper than 16. It didn't cost thousands of dollars an hour. And that's when you see families of color, working class families, rural families, kids making film. Mm. And it's it's a it's a, it's wonderful. And though, you know, videotapes started as ascendance in the 70s and 80s, uh, many people held on to film and continued to make film on film, um, you know, up to today, really. We have uh, material in the archives that that documents the 80s and a little bit into the 90s. Mm. Interesting. You know, um, in some ways I've thought of you two specifically and the work that you've done both in the archive and, and for the world, it it feels like one of the last shards that I can hang on to of a kind of, you know, internet utopianism. Like this was kind of feels to me like how it was supposed to go. Like on a better timeline, there'd be all these Prelinger archives. I why is it that more archives don't make more material available in the way that you do? Is there is are there like technical or financial reasons that prevent people or is it just they don't want to. I mean, a lot do, but um, maybe not for downloading. So you can make your own movies. Mm-hmm. And also it's expensive. And we are lucky to be better resourced. Our Internet Archive was very helpful to us, the Filecoin Foundation. We have resources that a lot of well-intentioned archives don't. But there is a lot of access. But there could be much, much more. Yeah. Do you think it was just the particular era that you two came into this work that makes your orientation a little different from other people? To some extent, um, that we did get going at times when the Internet was still kind of new, unformed, its rules, Mm -hmm. its uh, dominant and secondary virtues and possibilities were all in play and being defined in real time. Mm -hmm. And our early work was part of that. And so we are still kind of partly hanging in that space uh, (laughs) where the internet um, offers, um, along with Internet Archive, like free access to knowledge for everyone. Um, We are still in that space. We're not alone in that space. There's still a lot happening um, and more in the future. Yeah. But also I think we're kind of contrarian because we, we collect a lot, but we wouldn't think of collecting anything that we couldn't push out to people. Yeah, mm. we're not nostalgists. You know, we're pushing for the future here. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah, I mean, this is why it's a long now, you know, our project, thinking about long-term thinking and history and coming to terms mm. with history and on a personal level mm. is a really important example of long-term thinking. Elongate that arc. With yeah. all this evidence, make that arc of history longer in both directions, reach into the past and forward. Thanks so much. My heroes, we've been talking with Bay Area archivists Rick and Megan Prelinger about their collections, their theory of the archive, as well as the Lost Landscape series, which is going to be screened this year, December 4th and 5th at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. More information available at lostlandscapes.com. Org. Thank you both so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you, Thanks, Alexis. Alexis. Yeah. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.